you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men, who stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him, and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people, who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster 
over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly, made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, um, what a reading. Hey, that voice. Uh, I know it scared the McMurrays away. They ran out to the back somewhere, but... uh, Hey, uh, my name is Michael. Uh, It's a privilege to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here and to preach through this passage. Uh, We are covering a huge chunk of Scripture this morning. So we're going from uh, middle of chapter 11 of 1 Kings all the way to the middle of chapter 14. Uh, There's heaps going on, and so I would encourage you, if you've got your Bible with you, uh, get it out so you can follow along. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, um, open your Bible app or or have a look online at Bible.com. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, I want to encourage you to visit the guys at the info desk afterwards, and we would love to gift you with a Bible uh, afterwards. But um, yeah, a little bit about me. I, uh, I'm married to Izzy. We have four kids. Uh, we've got Ollie, Jonas, Noah, and Georgia. I think that's all. Um, and I've been married to Izzy for nearly 14 years, so we're going to hit 14 years in January. Um, yeah, we've, we've made it that far. Uh, But for about 12 of those years, uh, my beloved wife has been encouraging, nagging, um, asking me to go get a sleep study test. You know, she says, listen, I can deal with the snoring, it affects my sleep, but it freaks me out when I listen to you and you can't breathe at night. And um, and so, you know, she's been uh, going, you know, you're tired, you're irritable, apparently. And I'm like, well, that's because we've had newborns for the last nine years. Um, sure, maybe I fall asleep sometimes watching the footy on the couch. Who doesn't do that? Maybe sometimes I fall asleep when we have friends over on the couch. But I just put that down, the fact that we need more interesting friends, right? Uh, no offense to quite a few people that I fall on the couch in this room. But uh, anyway, I, I had a twitch for a couple of years that was cured by addiction to coffee. So that was all right. But um, anyway, after... A lot of years of nagging and uh, pleading, and is he recording my sleep? I decided to finally concede and went to the sleep physician to get a sleep study test. And, uh, you know, as I'm going in, I'm on the phone easy, I'm like, listen, uh, at worst, I'll get a mild diagnosis. You know, at, listen, I'm a dentist, I know a thing or two about sleep, stu- uh, you know, sleep apnea, dull, it's fine. Anyway, I go in, see the sleep physician, and he said, why are you here? And I said, oh, no problems here, it's just my wife. Uh, you know, <laughs> just going to do this to stop her nagging me. He's like, sure, sure, sure. So, yeah, you get in, you get strapped up, you go to sleep. Uh, I had an undisturbed sleep, uh, which was amazing. Uh, the next morning, you go into his office and he gives you the report. And, um, yeah, he throws the sleep report at you and leans over and he's circling all the times uh, that I wasn't breathing. And as he's circling, I'm realizing, geez, there's, there's a few times here. And uh, it turns out that I came within 0.5% of uh, being diagnosed with severe sleep apnea. And, um, and he, I'm like, oh, no. He's like, I know this is, you know, this is serious and it's going to change some things. I'm like, no. Is he going to say, I told you so? <laughs> And, uh, and he looks at me so seriously, you know, as a professional, giving me advice. He said, Michael, you're just going to have to let her have her moment. Uh, you know, uh, the less you argue back, uh, it's going to go quicker if you don't push back and uh, just, just let it play out. 
but have, have you ever had that moment uh, where you've been given good advice and you just don't want to hear it? Um, you know, you've been given the advice that's going to be good for you and you just won't have it. Uh, unfortunately for me, I've actually got quite a few more of those stories where I haven't listened to my wife's advice. So it's a, it's a wonder we've made 14 years. But, um, you know, this morning, uh, we actually hit a critical part in the history of the Old Testament. Um, Mike last week gave a fantastic intro of what was going on in the time of Solomon. You know, this king who ruled and it all started so well and the temple was built and then things start to fall apart a little bit. And this week we actually pick up uh, where Solomon is about to die and then dies and the kingdom tragically splits. You know, the golden era in Israel's history is cut short. Um, I'm not sure about you guys, but I've been to like a few, you know, leadership seminars, how to be a better leader, and there's a lot of, you know, you need to do this, you do that, you can buy books. Uh, when you read First and Second Kings, it's exactly like that, but completely opposite, right? These guys show us how not to lead, um, how not to follow God uh, faithfully. And I think there's a lot of lessons in the how nots for us. You know, often we learn from others' mistakes, often we learn from our own mistakes. Um, and in the Bible, actually, often refers back in the New Testament saying, hey, look at Israel, look how they've stuffed up and don't go down that same path. And so today, uh, we're going to focus um, mainly most of our time on uh, King Jeroboam. Okay? Uh, there's a lot that goes on in this passage, and I really encourage you uh, throughout this week, have a read through it. It's, it's really interesting, um, but for the sake of me not being up here for about five hours, we're going to focus uh, on Jeroboam and some of his failures. And uh, we're going to look three of those failures. Uh, we're going to look at his failure to hear God's word. We're going to see his failure to walk in God's way, and we're going to see his failure to see God's work in history. And in actual fact, he has those same failures that uh, Rehoboam also has. So, let's set the scene. For the scene, we have a diagram, and it is up here. Look at that. Uh, I sent this last night in a really bad homemade word version, and I come this morning. It looks amazing, so thank you to the team. Okay, so this is to orientate us a little bit, because it can get a bit confusing. So, last week we heard that because of Solomon's sin, the sin of bringing false gods into Israel, uh, the gods of his wives from foreign lands, the wives he wasn't meant to marry, um, the kingdom was going to be taken away from his children. Um, and so in 1 Kings chapter 11, we meet a guy named Jeroboam. Okay, So Jeroboam is not Solomon's son. He's not in line for the throne. Uh, but He's, um, he's one of Solomon's servants. He's actually described as a really able guy. Solomon notices him and goes, wow, he's pretty, he's pretty good at what he does. And he makes him the leader of the forced labor in the house of Joseph. Um, while, he's, while Jeroboam's going out and about doing his thing, he um, meets a prophet called Ahijah. And Ahijah says to him, listen, uh, God is going to rip 10 tribes out of the house of Solomon. And I'm going to make you king. All right? And if you follow in my commands, if you don't follow false gods, if you follow in the ways of King David, I'm going to bless you and you're going to have a, a sort of an everlasting kingdom and makes this amazing promise to him. Uh, but he also says, the prophet Ahiza says, uh, Jeroboam, he's going he's to keep Judah and Benjamin. Okay? And so uh, we're going to snuff out most of Solomon's rule uh, except for that portion. And so um, Jeroboam, um, here's this word, uh, 
whether Solomon got wind of this promise or whether Jeroboam got a little bit overexcited and thought, hey, while Solomon's alive, I'm, I'm going to take over this kingdom. But we're told that Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam. So Jeroboam hightails it out of, um, of Israel and goes and hides in Egypt. Okay? And so the passage we heard read out uh, was after King Solomon dies. So his son, Rehoboam, just to confuse us, um, he takes the throne, um, and he becomes king. And as we heard in the passage, you know, Jeroboam comes back to Israel, and the people of Israel, including Jeroboam, go up to the king and say, hey, can you ease our workload? Uh, he says, let me think about it. Goes, chats to some older, wiser people. He doesn't like what they have to say. So he goes, gets advice for his mates, and goes, yep, this is good, and he runs with their advice. And the result is disastrous. The kingdom gets ripped out from beneath him. And so uh, he keeps, he, so he sort of has to hide and go to Jerusalem. And so he gets the Judah and the two tribes down there. And up there, uh, Jeroboam takes over the rest of Israel. Does that make sense? Cool. All right. Awesome. And so Jeroboam, hot off realizing that God's word was fulfilled, um, you know, as promised, he became king. And so he decided. He didn't want to risk the Israelites going back to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple in case they turn their allegiance back to David's house, back to Rehoboam. Um, and, you know, you don't blame him. Like, the people have proven to be pretty fickle. Like, they turned on Rehoboam pretty quickly. So Jeroboam is paranoid about this. And so what does he do? He builds some golden calves for them to worship and makes all of the worship in that area of Israel so they don't have to go to Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 13, we uh, meet a random man of God uh, who's from Judah. He confronts Jeroboam uh, at the altar and, he, uh, altar, and he pronounces judgment for this. And Jeroboam you know, reaches his hand out and goes, stop. It gets frozen. Uh, he gets the man of God to heal his hand. Uh, but despite all of this warning, it finishes chapter 13 saying that he just continues on in his sin. Uh, I encourage you to, to read the passage yourself. There's some pretty cool side stories on the man of God as well. Uh, but chapter 14 uh, starts with, I guess, that original prophet, Ahiza, who had who pro- told Jeroboam that he was going to be king. He prophesies against Jeroboam's household and his descendants. And so what starts off so promising for him ends up so, so badly. And so that's what we're up to. Are we with me? All right, good, 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 good. And so we'll, we'll refer back to this a couple of times as you uh, uh, might get confused or I might slip up the names of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. But we'll see how we go. So uh, as I read and reread this passage over the last couple of weeks, uh, one of the things that jumped out at me is that you've got two kings here, uh, both making really poor decisions, but neither of them are because they don't know what the right thing to do is. Right? They both knew what they ought to do. So the first point I want to uh, focus on is Jeroboam's failure to hear God's word. It's the good advice that he just didn't take. Think about it. You know, Jeroboam gets a prophecy from Ahijah that he will be king. It's fulfilled. You know, in verse 11, uh, sorry, chapter 11, verse 38, it says, And if you will listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I'll be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I'll give, you, give Israel to you. Yet, 
When he becomes king, he gets insecure, whether it's because he's not really from the line of David, he feels illegitimate, or what, but he's desperate not to lose the kingdom. And I don't know if it's that insecurity or fear or pride, but whatever the motivation is, he decides not to trust God's word to him. Rather, he doesn't want the people turning on him, like they did Rehoboam, so he wants to keep the power. So, instead of listening to God's words to keep his commands and not worship other gods, he creates his own gods that he thinks is going to be strategically beneficial. And so when he seeks counsel, he doesn't go back to like Ahiza, the prophet, who had given him God's word himself. He goes to some joker who says, hey, build some golden calves. Does that sound familiar at all in Israel's history? And how did that work out for them at the bottom of Mount Sinai? You know, it led to death and destruction, yet he still went down this way. You know, this guy who just starts out with so much profit, uh, so, sorry, so much promise, stuffs it up so badly. And the big thing you look at is why? Like, why would he do that? And it's because he fails to trust that God is good. He fails to trust God's word. He fails to trust that God's way is better than his ways. And he didn't want to risk doing what was unwise strategically in our eyes, to put his faith in God and still let the people go to Jerusalem. You know, as a Christian, God has given us his words in the Bible, right? I know that sounds really basic, but it's true. And in the Bible, we've got all the advice we need uh, for our life. You know, there's so much in there, and we've got um, God's commands for us. And so rather than often searching the Scripture for wisdom, for what we ought to do, You know, often we're influenced by our society, you know, the messages that are told to us all the time. And what's not helping us is our heart is deceitful as well, right? Like our heart is leaning away from God and towards the world. Um, I think often our heart is similar to that of Jeroboam. So whether it's insecurity or fear or pride, so often we don't want to follow God's words. We don't want to hear His words. Like think about the way... Um, your heart is influenced by some of the things we look at in life at the moment. Like, what are some of the big issues? You know, how are we drifting in going with our society at the moment? You know, whether it's, you know, the way we um, view sexuality, uh, how we view marriage, how we view singleness. Um, Like Mike mentioned last week, you know, uh, as we learned from Solomon, you know, going against God's word and dating or marrying a non-Christian. Um... How we look at things like pro-life, pro-choice, euthanasia, all these really complex things. And and there's so, so many examples. You know, is your primary source of influence the God who made all things, the God who made people with dignity and worth and purpose? The only way to have informed views on those things is actually through being in His Word. And it's not being in His Word in one time, but constantly being in it. Because you see, God's ways are sort of up here, and the world's ways are pulling up against it. And if we aren't in his words always, we're going to drift with society, and we're going to drift away from his word. And so we need to be in it constantly. And the consequences of being pulled downstream with the world can be disastrous, right? It's, you know, it can be um, us failing to live the life that God made us to live, you know, to see the blessings that he's promised for us. Or in the case of Jeroboam, it's a slow decline away from the faith altogether that leads to um, destruction. And for Jeroboam, it wasn't just for himself, but for his people and the generations to come. 
And, um, you know, in Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son, uh, you know, we see um, an example, maybe similar to me with the sleep apnea, where you ignore the good advice of those around us because we just don't want to, we just don't like what they're saying, right? And so, because our heart's deceitful, we run and we try to find people who are aligned with our thinking. We want to um, hear what we want to hear. So, yeah, I'm getting advice, but actually it stacks to, to hear what I want to hear, right? And, uh, you know, um, the real wisdom um, for him in Rehoboam's case was actually to listen to the older, wiser people. And I think there's a word there that's really helpful for us about getting advice from older, wiser Christians. You know, people who have been in the faith for a long time, they've seen some things, they look at things differently, there's a patience and a wisdom of following Jesus for a long time that you can benefit from. Now, I'm not saying, um, you know, take the word of older people without thinking it through. Uh, by all means, it should be consistent with Scripture, but there is so much blessing there for us um, to have that um, advice from older Christians. Uh, so I want to encourage uh, younger people in our church, which is a bunch of our church, you know, don't ignore the older people. Um, there is so much uh, there for you if you connect and benefit from their experiences and their life. Um, you know, I've been sort of blessed enough that different seasons of our GCs, we've had older people in our GC, and it's been so great doing life with them, and some of the lessons and just even the way I think through getting older has been framed, has been changed so much by those that have been in our life, and I think for the better, you know, people that have been following Jesus for a long time. And uh, I want to say a word to the older folks in our church is um, don't look around at the younger church and go, geez, what can I offer? Uh, we need you. We need you investing. And we have so many of these people. I'm not saying everyone's doing that. We've got, we're blessed to have lots of older folks in our church that are investing so purposefully into the people of our church. Um, but hey, if you're thinking, I'm not that old, this doesn't apply to me, uh, there's always someone a bit younger that you can invest in, right? Uh, we've got next-gen ministries, like uh, Dave mentioned. You know, we've got Crash. Uh, we've got City Kids, we've got City Youth, Kids Club kicked off the other day. Um, you know, how does it look to sacrificially invest in our next generation? Because uh, for those who grew up in youth groups and things, you know how influential your leaders were and how they helped form the way you see things. And um, how can you be involved in that as well? So as we look at the failure to hear God's word, we need to remember that our hearts are deceitful and we'll want to ignore God's word and the good advice and run to our society to help us form what we think is right or wrong. We need to ground ourselves in God's Word, which reminds us that He is good, that He can be trusted, and that His ways are better than our ways. So the first mistake uh, that we see from Jeroboam is actually his failure to hear God's Word. The next thing we see is his failure to walk in his ways. You see, Jeroboam didn't realize that worshipping God on his terms, is actually not worshipping God at all. Um, in chapter 12, uh, we see Jeroboam make up his own worship, right? So he's, he's not throwing God out altogether, and he actually sets the idols up in historically significant parts in Israel's history. So there's a hint of Godness about it, but he's making ch changes to suit what he feels he needs strategically, right? So he makes altars, he defines where worship is, he actually um, sets different, all sorts of different people up as priests, he makes up his own feasts, and even after the hand-freezing incident, and he sees God's power again, the warning for him is there in chapter 13, it says in uh, verse 33, after this, things, um, the, uh, after this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, 
but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would be ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. You see, Jeroboam didn't make up this false religion because he doesn't know who God is, right? He's experienced the power of his word, you know, in him becoming king. He's experienced God's power in the judgment that the man of God brings and the hand-freezing thing. But he creates this to keep control of things because he doesn't trust God at his word. He wants to use strategy and logic to rule his kingdom rather than live by faith in the one that has proven so far to be so faithful to him. So unfortunately for Jeroboam, rather than seeing the fruits of the promises that God had made for him, he actually ends up being the poster boy for sinful kings of Israel. And over the next 180 years, we see the demise before they go into exile. And in uh, First and Second Kings, you hear this line repeated uh, throughout, and it says of the next kings that also stuff up, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Jeez, what a reputation, hey? Um, so we read on, uh, you know, you go, well, hold on, Solomon's still got a son, Rehoboam, maybe there's still some hope here. Well, later on in chapter 14, we realize that he puts up um, uh, idols and, and shrines and, and he stuffs it up just as badly. And you think, geez, what a devastating state for God's chosen people to be in. You know, both kings decided that walking in God's way wasn't important. Uh, and there were severe consequences for them. But it's not just them. You know, their people and generations to come were affected by their sin. When you read these sorts of things, you see the consequence of the failure to relate to God as he calls us to. We don't get to define worship. You know, the consequence of choosing to make up our own rules are severe. The consequence of sin and rejecting our Creator are devastating. Um, Worshipping God under our own terms is actually putting ourselves in God's position. And that is the ultimate sin, right? And so often we're trying to do what we think is wise or convenient or maybe commercially beneficial or, in Jeroboam's case, what's going to keep his power. It's walking in our way rather than his. Um, as, as I mentioned, I've got four kids. Uh, number three is Noah. He's, uh, he's three years old, and uh, his older brothers often refer to him as wild. Um, and he is a little bit wild. And uh, poor Noah, you know, he's three years younger than sort of the next one up, and he's desperately trying to catch up. So the kid is, um, he's, he's, he, you know, pretty proactive. You know, he teaches himself how to ride without training wheels, without anyone teaching him. He can rollerblade, he skateboards, and it's like he's actively trying to kill himself, but he's trying to keep up with his brothers. And unfortunately, with four kids, we don't have time to teach him anything, so he's just got to fend for himself, right? Um, but uh, when we take Noah for a ride, there's some set rules, right? And, and even though he's pretty wild, um, in some ways, he's really cautious. So I can trust that when we take Noah out, and if you say stop, he'll stop. You know, like if, if there's a car coming or whatever, he'll stop. Uh, he'll always sort of stop at the road before crossing because um, he knows that that's dangerous and he'll follow that rule. And, and he'll never just run off. Like he's, um, he's wild, but he doesn't, like he's not a runner. So, you know, he'll sort of boomerang back eventually, uh, which is good. Um, but there's certain rules that he just, just will not listen to, right? And one of those rules is slowing down downhill. Like, he wants to race his brothers, and he doesn't care. So a couple of weeks ago, 
Simon knows this story because I called him frantically. Um, he missed the call. Uh, texted me later. But anyway, we'll, we'll deal with that later. No, no. Um, Izzy's taking him for a run. He's done really well. He's obeying the whole way. Uh, the last hill going down is pretty steep. Um, and Izzy's like, Noah, you've got to slow down. He ignores her. He's just fanging it down the hill. And then he just face plants. Um, misses the helmet and huge egg on the, fr- on the middle of his head and, you know, he's taken to hospital, getting checked out for concussion, that sort of thing. Uh, he was fine. He's still fine. We still have four kids. Uh, but, you know, we sit down with Noah afterwards and we're like, mate, like, we've got these rules for your safety um, so that you stay alive, so that you don't end up with, the, with a, you know, banged head. You've got to follow all of the rules, not just 70% of the rules. It's the whole thing. But, you know, thinking about Noah... Uh, I wonder in what ways we're similar. You know, there's certain parts of God's commands that we just choose, yeah, I'm going to run with that. And there's other bits that you go, no, no, it's it's not important. I'm going to decide for myself that actually doesn't really apply. Um, You know, we try to have one foot in God's camp and one foot in the world. Uh, We want, you know, the blessing of being part of God's people, but maybe we don't want to sacrificially love others. Or, you know, we want the benefit of... um, of having him as our, um, you know, as our saviour, but we don't want him as our king, right? Ruling our life. Uh, you know, we want to be God's children, but we don't want to have a high view of marriage when things get tough. Um, you know, we want um, to be God's people, but we want to ignore him on sexual ethics. Or we want God's grace without it leading to obedience and following um, and, and having good works and so on and so on. There's so many different ways. We want to decide which things we want to follow and which things we want to ignore. Uh, We want to worship him on our terms. And when we do that, that's not worshiping him at all. And I want to encourage you this morning to reflect on in what ways, you know, we're all sort of wired for different things. In what ways are we deciding we're going to worship God in our terms? In what ways are we going to ignore his commands in our life? So if you're still with me, Uh, We're going to have seen the failure to hear God's word and the failure to walk in his ways. And uh, both of these is caused by a lack of belief that God is good and that his way is actually better than our ways. Um, We love the wisdom of this world. But if you leave today and what you've gotten out of this passage is, hey, I've uh, I've got to listen to good advice, read the Bible, and do better at obedience, you've kind of missed the big thing that's going on. Um, You see, the third thing that I want to look at is actually one of their biggest failures is the failure to see God's work in history. So imagine that you are um, one of the faithful Jews, living in Jerusalem at the moment. Uh, You can't blame them for looking at things to feeling really hopeless, right? Feeling like things are out of control. Uh, They've just lived through this glorious time. The kingdom's divided. You've got two really average kings, and things are deteriorated really quickly, right? And you wouldn't blame him for thinking, God's lost control here, or maybe he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. But when we read the passage throughout this, um, that's clearly not the case, all right? Let's have a look at chapter 11, verse 31. It says, And he said to Jeroboam, Take it for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from heaven, uh, oh, sorry, from the hand of Solomon, and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city 
what I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Can you see that it is God tearing the kingdom away from Solomon? It is God who decides which tribes stay and which tribes go. He's in control here. And in chapter 12, verse 15, um, yeah, this is speaking of Rehoboam, it says, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Hijah the Shelonite, the, uh, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So God's hand is well and truly in this. And in chapter 12, verse 21, it says, When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of the Judah and Benjamin to, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. You know, even in the evil, even in the brokenness, God is working his will. He's still in control. He's sovereign over all things throughout this. Now, you might say, uh, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 you've just spent the last sort of 28 and a half minutes telling us about how important it is for us to follow God's words, uh, how important it is, uh, it is for us to obey and walk in his ways. But now you're saying God's sovereign over all this. So is Rehoboam and Jeroboam, like, are they really responsible here? Um, if God is sovereign, it's going to raise that question, isn't it? And so this, um, this passage, like so many other passages in Scripture, actually helps us see the complexity of what really goes on, right? So on one hand, um, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, humans, are responsible for their actions, right? Man's responsibility is real. And we've seen the effect of their sin on their people. And we saw the effect of you know, Adam and Eve's sin on humanity. There is true consequences, Okay, But equally, God's sovereignty is real. And God works and weaves his ways through history to um, bring about his good works and his plan. Right? And so you've got these two sort of opposing truths that are completely true and completely upheld. Man's responsibility for sin and God's sovereignty. And if we miss God's sovereignty, we miss the big thing that's going on. Um, so though they seem at odds, these things are both 100% true. So what hope do those people, that remnant in Jerusalem, have in this hopeless time is the hope that God is sovereign and that he does keep his word. They know that he always has, and as a result, he always will. Uh, you see, not all the hope is lost because God is in the business of restoring broken people back to himself. And... Um, they have his promises way back. You know, I know Mike mentioned this last week. You know, Genesis 3, uh, after the fall, it talks about the son of Eve who's going to bruise the head of the snake. And then later on in Genesis 12, you know, God makes a covenant with Abraham. You know, they look back at that and see God promise that um, all the nations will be blessed through his family. And then when we fast forward into Exodus and we see, um, you know, the Passover lamb and the blood over the posts and God passes his judgment over and we get into his laws and we see these signposts ahead of what God is promising. And then we land in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I think we'll land in this a few times throughout the next few weeks. It's such a key um, scripture. It says, I will to, so it says to David regarding his sons, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he mits, commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So if you read that and you haven't read First Kings carefully, you're thinking, geez, God has... Yeah, well, I'm looking at the thing, like, God has taken the kingdom away from David. Uh, but that's not the case, as we've just seen. So even though God has taken the kingdom from the house of David, you can, see, can you see how he's faithful in his promise here? That he's continuing on. Now, this is a massive word of encouragement to us, right? Like, when we're looking at life, scratching our heads, going, God, what the heck is going on? You know, how are things so out of control? Why are things so, um, so bad? Um, you know, know, knowing that God is sovereign in all circumstances is actually the only thing that gives us a solid hope when things seem hopeless or when things seem completely out of control. And so no matter where you're at, at the moment, um, yeah, I want you to remember that truth because it is a true comfort and it's based on a reality. Um, you know, even a throwback to what you know, Dave mentioned in the intro, you know, we're about to enter some pretty uncertain times over the next few months, and there's going to be, uh, for some people, a lot of fear, um, and there's a lot of uncertainty, and knowing that God's hand is sovereign through this is a great comfort. So, uh, but this actually even shows um, that uh, there's hope even in times of kingdom division, right? Like, this is really bad. Israel's been split, um, and things are going to go downhill pretty quick, and both tribes or both kingdoms will end up in exile, okay? Um, but um, there's still hints of hope there that we just read. Now, I know there's a, a bunch of people in our church that have been uh, listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, it's a tragic story of a collapse of a large church uh, pretty much overnight. And, you know, you can listen to things and what went on and the failures and something like that, or you can even reflect to hurt that you felt in churches over the years. Um, maybe it's disappointment in uh, church splits. Um, and it's really hard to walk away from those sorts of experiences and not be really skeptical um, and harsh towards churches or uh, feel really bitter uh, towards churches or even church leaders or pastors. But, you know, despite broken churches, um, despite broken leaders, God works his, um, his ways, and God's kingdom is going to come in power and glory, no matter how we stuff it up. Uh, there's one commentator who described it, he says, um, you know, God's kingdom is going to come in power and glory. It can, however, um, be tarnished, it's, uh, so we can tarnish its luster by our folly and faithlessness, but his will will be done. I guess we get to choose whether we want to be tarnishing its luster or contributing to it. And this really is comforting good news, even in the hardest times. You know, these faithful few in Jerusalem, um, they saw the promises in the past, but we've actually got the benefit of being a bit further on in history. So we know as things deteriorate further, and just before Judah is about to go into exile, uh, God says to Hosea uh, in chapter 3, verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. So even before they go to exile, they promise that they will return. Then God reinforces his promise, his, his commitment to the line of David while they're in exile through Ezekiel 34. And it says, 
uh, verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. We fast forward to Jesus who comes, who is from the line of David, and in chapter 10 of uh, John, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, we see that all of God's promises to David and to the line of David are actually fulfilled in Jesus. And, you know, it's when things looked desperately lost. You know, as Jesus hung on the cross, he'd been, um, you know, he'd had religious leaders plotting against him. He had one of his um, close followers sell him out. Uh, He's there, he's just been tortured, he's dying on the cross, and it looks like things are completely out of control. You know, you can imagine Jesus' followers at that time feeling a lot like those in Jerusalem in the time of Jeroboam, going, what the heck has gone on here? How did things go so desperately wrong? But, you know, um, it is in that time, as man is plotting for evil, that God uses it for good. You know, men's responsibility, but God is still sovereign over the situation. And it's at that time of desperation um, that Jesus, the one who has lived the way Jeroboam was actually called to live, you know, the one who always worked in God's ways. Uh, He's the one who heard God's word and he knew he could see God's work in history. As he laid on that cross and looked like God was out of control, that is the moment of, like, greatest victory, right? As Jesus um, took the punishment for sin. And on that third day, as he rose again, we can see what God was actually doing. Uh, In Romans chapter 3, it explains uh, what went on on the cross so well. In in verse 22, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You know, the righteousness that Jeroboam fell short of... um, The righteousness that even David fell short of is the same righteousness that we all fall short of. um, But by having trust in Jesus, we are attributed his righteousness onto us. That is what's known as the great exchange, and it's given to us as a free gift by grace. It is amazing news. And, you know, it's not till we set our eyes on what God is doing in history, when we have a look at Jesus on that cross... That is when we see that God is good, that He is trustworthy, that He is worth giving our life for. And so it's when we set our eyes on Jesus that we naturally want to listen to His words, right? We naturally want to follow Him, we want to get in His word, and we want to know what He wants. And it also then should lead us to want to walk in His ways, because He is trustworthy and He is good. And and so I I pray that this week, or, or for the rest of our lives, we actually set our eyes on Jesus, we see what God has done in history to ground us on how we ought to live. So uh, let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, so much that you speak to us. I thank you uh, that in your word we can see the failures of those before us and we can learn from that. But Lord, I thank you that we can look at your work in all of history as you have promised uh, salvation, Lord, and we can see salvation play out in Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that we can then look forward to your promise of return and bring us home with you, Lord. And I pray that uh, we might cast our eyes on Jesus, Lord, uh, that we might be people who hear your word, 
that we might be people who follow in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.